Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the new episode of Survive HR. We're su super excited you guys have decided to listen in. Um, we're joined again with a live studio audience who is going to be sending questions to slido.com, hashtag SHR19. Again, hashtag SHR19. We're going to keep that live for all podcast listeners. So if you ever have a question for us or want us to address something on our podcast, please, slido.com, hashtag SHR19, SurviveHR19. Um, and we're once again joined. You're looking at me like I'm supposed to yeah, introduce I'm, I'm really, you or something. I'm, no, I'm really ticked off at you, actually, because... You know, I just want, first of all, congratulations. You know, Kelly never does anything small. This past weekend, um, she adopted two children last week, so congratulations. Thank I know you. it's been a long, uh, laborious thing, but she decided to throw them a party. And she rented, a, I don't know, a park, and you had a train, and you had a food truck, and you had a tent, and kids were running around everywhere. And it was because of her that I went over there. I, you know, my grandkids were there. My son was there. Uh, my grandson is two comes up and he wants to give me slobbery kisses and I notice that his nose is all runny and so now I have a nose runny so it's really your fault Kelly that I'm in this condition today. <laughs> but congratulations on the adoption. I have no comment on that. That's ridiculous. I can't I'm not going to be blamed for your weakened immunity. <laughs> yeah I'm just old and, and tired I think. Take some vitamins man. <laughs> Take some vitamins. All right we have some serious stuff right so we have lawyers in the house. Okay, and we're going to talk about investigations. True. Okay. We have um, Matt Johnson. We have Lucas Asper, both of the Ogletree Deacons National Smoke and Stewart firm, which is not only uh, a top-rated in many, many uh, realms, the number one employment and labor firm in the country, but they're also now a global firm. We've got offices all over the world. So if you have offices in France or Spain or somewhere, you can still use Ogletree Deacons, Nash, Smoke, and Stewart. So welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thanks Thank to you. you. So we're going to talk about employment investigation. So I'm going to let you guys kick off some initial questions, um, and audience members ask questions, and we'll do our best to chime in with likely irrelevant items. So go ahead, guys. Well, what, well let me ask you a question. When, when, is, when is a company legally obligated to actually conduct an investigation? So, I mean, there are certain circumstances where you must under the law, and the number one thing that everybody thinks about is when a complaint of harassment or discrimination is made. Um, in order to assert the right type of defense that we as lawyers want to make on your behalf, what you need to do is show that upon receipt of a report or a complaint, you took prompt steps to conduct a thorough investigation. What now, does prompt mean? Prompt means quickly, don't sit on it. Now, what that could be in each individual situation could look a little bit different. Um, I, I'd say a good rule of thumb, if, if you get a complaint and you can't show that you are taking steps in furtherance of the investigation within the first few days, then that's not prompt, or at least there's an argument it's not prompt. Now, there are times with holidays and vacations and everything else we might not be able to do all the interviews the same week or even maybe in a couple of weeks, but show that we are immediately engaging in a process in furtherance of that investigation. That's the key prompt. Okay. And, and I think the key is to be consistent. I mean, I, 
I would caution employers always err on the side of going forward with that investigation because if you don't, there may come a time when you don't do an investigation and you may regret it because what you've done is you've ignored one scenario and perhaps done an investigation of another scenario, both of which turn out if you actually had done the investigation, similar facts, similar thing, and that's going to set you up for liability. Yeah, and one of the questions I've gotten many times is, I get an anonymous, vague complaint, do I still have to investigate it? And the answer is absolutely yes, from a legal perspective. Now remember, your obligation is to do a prompt and thorough investigation. What thorough means depends on the complaint that you get. If you get an anonymous complaint that is very vague and you can't pin down what it involves, who it involves, what location it took place at, conducting a thorough investigation doesn't require too much. You do what you can in good faith and you document that you did it. But if you get an anonymous complaint that says, manager John Doe did this to me, well, we already have a pretty specific set of facts there, even though we don't know definitively who made the complaint. So in either scenario, regardless of how much we get, we want to make sure we can show we responded appropriately in response to the complaint. So one of the things that always makes me really anxious about investigations is who's investigating. So, because all of that is discoverable, right? So if you actually end up going to court over these, these things, all the notes are discoverable. So if I always want HR to be the ones investigating, is that your recommendation or is your recommendation that we train our managers on how to conduct an investigation? Can I follow up with that as, as well? Because not only, but when, when is an out, when should you go outside of say your your company to actually, you know, maybe you hire someone else to come in and investigate. So, so I'll start with Steve's question because I think it's the easier one to, an, uh, to answer pretty specifically. There are three scenarios where I always recommend using an outside investigator, and that could be legal, that could be an HR consultant, that could be a lot of different people, but somebody coming in from an outsider's perspective and doing the investigation all the way through. Those three scenarios are, number one, when HR is the subject of the complaint. We never want HR to investigate a situation where HR is the subject of the complaint. Why? Because common sense tells us that it creates a perception of prejudice or bias. Because those are our friends that are being investigated. In that same vein, situation number two, if a high-level executive is the subject of the complaint because chances are they control the terms and conditions ultimately of everyone within the company. And so there is again this perception, well of course you're going to find that there was no, nothing to substantiate harassment by president of the company because he's the one who controls whether you continue to work here or not. And honestly that's what sparked a lot of the Me Too movement is companies being unwilling to make tough decisions with high level executives and people having this bulletproof feeling. So the third situation is if there's something that's really, really nasty, like a sexual assault in your workplace, get somebody outside involved because there could be criminal issues at play here as much as the making sure we're legally complying and avoiding civil liability. So that's the easy answer to Steve's question on the who does it from the HR perspective on the average investigation. What do you think on that, Matt? 
Well, let me, let me add one, one more sort of subtopic. If it's a systemic allegation, systemic allegations of racism or sexism or whatever, they inherently go from the top to bottom. So they sort of fit within what Lucas was talking e explain about. Explain systemic. If everything about a company just reeks of sexism or reeks of racism, not just the way things are handled at the top, the way things are handled at HR. And a lot of times you'll see EEO charges, EEOC charges or shack charges here in South Carolina that sort of generally say they were racist, you know, throughout management, throughout HR, nobody listened to me, nobody did the appropriate analysis or investigation, the whole company just stinks. Yeah, and, and kind of in that same, uh, that same issue, if the person has made a complaint and it fell on deaf ears and HR didn't do something, and for whatever reason, either we intentionally swept it under the rug, which I hope is not the case, or it just slipped through the cracks. But the key is time went by and we did not respond appropriately. At that time, I'd get somebody outside involved to show we're serious about this, we take this seriously to avoid that systemic, cultural-type allegation. But, but assuming you don't go outside of the company to conduct that investigation, uh, your, I think your question was, who, who do we get to do it? Can, does it have to be HR? Can it be somebody other than HR? And obviously, uh, you know, my preference would be, let's keep it with the most trained HR professional that we can reasonably get. That may, may not be always the VP of HR, it may be a generalist, um, but it should be at least somebody who has some understanding of general HR principles, general investigation principles, how to document things, how to ask the right questions, um, and, 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 and has the time to do the follow-up. A lot of, that's part of my concern when somebody says, well, we'll just get the VP or we'll get somebody in management to do it. My first question is, well, okay, will they do it? Because again, promptness is important. Actually doing it is critical. Documenting it well is equally important. When Lucas and I get lawsuits on the back end, if, they're not, if somebody hasn't taken the time to document them and doesn't understand how to document it correctly, it can be worse for your lawsuit than, than improve the situation. Yeah, and, and I'm not picking on anybody here, but I'm going to give you an example of a trend that I've seen, in, especially in the retail industry, um, for investigations, is they delegate all investigations to the loss prevention department. Um, because those are the people who investigate issues in the workplace in our company. That might work, but I'll tell you, when I get those reports, they read like a police report, where it's like, subject A did blah, 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 blah at this time, and they always write time in military time. I mean, it's almost comical. It really is, because I can tell that a loss prevention officer is the one who did it when I read the report and how it was written up. Um, they're not often trained in what the legal implications of what they put on that piece of paper are. So Matt's exactly right. If you're going to have people outside of HR, train them on how to investigate. And I do think it's important to train supervisors generally about how to investigate because not every issue involves harassment or discrimination. Supervisors become aware of issues day to day. I'm having a hard time getting along with Sally. Well, that's not a harassment complaint. There's nothing unlawful about it. But the supervisor needs to dig in and say, what's going on? Help me understand. Then probably needs to go talk to Sally. What's your perspective on this? And then you end up mediating some sort of solution there. It's not a legal issue. It's an employee relations issue. But, but it could be a legal issue. Yeah. And that, that supervisor, that manager, 
needs enough training from the HR folks to know if Sally comes to me with a complaint about her, her supervisor, I need to take it to the right people. Yeah, knows when to escalate the issue. Yeah, we've got uh, several questions that have come in from the audience. Uh, one, and this happens all the time, I'm sure you've seen it probably hundreds of times, what if you are informed of a relationship with a member of management and an hourly employee but did not receive a formal complaint? So, so it depends on your policy, number one, I'll say that. I would always encourage companies to have a strong anti-nepotism policy is usually what it fits under, but something that says managers are not going to have close personal relationships with the people that fall under their reporting structure. And guess what? We can discipline people for engaging in that relationship in violation of our policy. If we don't have that policy and we become aware of the relationship, I'm bringing those people in and I'm telling them, look, I've been made aware that this is going on. What's going on? Tell me what's happening here. And the reason why it's so important, relationships that are just all hunky-dory today become the harassment claims of tomorrow every single time. Because when that relationship goes sour, everybody gets upset and everybody wants to blame the other person for it. And guess what? If it's your supervisor that you're upset with, then it's, oh, I broke up with him and now I'm not getting the assignments I like anymore. That must be harassment. Isn't and that, that looks terrible. Isn't that defensible though? Like, can't you be like, no. Five minutes ago, they were loving each other. So it depends. A good lawyerly answer. Um, if it is truly consensual, it's not unlawful to pick on somebody for, it, for their sexual activity. I mean, there are actually cases that say Title VII says don't discriminate based on sex, which doesn't mean sexual activity. Those are two different concepts, obviously. Not, not yeah, not yet at least. Um, and so I worked on that case where you had a manager and a subordinate in a romantic relationship, both of them engaging in extramarital affairs, and it was a big old mess. Once husband of the wife, of the subordinate finds out about it, confronts them both, and of course it just explodes at that point. She gets fired. But guess what? It doesn't seem fair. It seems very wrong. But there's nothing unlawful about it technically because what it was, she didn't get fired because she refused to continue the relationship. She got fired because the two of them just couldn't work together anymore. I'm not saying it passes the smell test Wait, because it feels wrong. He didn't get fired? No, he, he was the son of the owner. Oh. <laughs> Seems fair, fair to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> the, uh, Multiple layers of nepotism. We've got uh, in kind of an in a sense, along the same lines, but another question is cyber harassment is a new weapon. How do we combat this in HR? How would you investigate text abuse or even social media? I would, again, going back to the last podcast we taped, uh, talking about policies and procedures. That's something I always include in my employee handbooks. Whenever I review them and I'm working with a client with employees who have computers, who have cell phones, they need a policy that makes it clear that harassment doesn't have to be face-to-face. -face. It doesn't have to be by telephone. It can be by the internet. It can be by social media. It can be by text. It can be through any digital means, just as it can in actual physical means. Yeah, and, and in terms of investigating it, you have somebody who comes and makes a complaint to you, and they say, so-and-so is sending me these harassing text messages. 
What do you do? Show me the text messages. Help me understand what's going on. At that point, it honestly can be the easiest investigation you do because you have concrete evidence of whether it happened or whether it didn't happen. I mean, I just wrote a position statement to the EEOC in that case where employee says, I'm getting nasty, nasty text messages from a manager in our organization. They immediately suspend the manager the same day. They bring in the subordinate and they say, show us the text messages. She did. It supported her complaint. He was fired the next day. She still went and filed a charge, which she has a right to do. But the, the position statement wrote itself because it, the company did exactly what I would want them to do in that scenario. They asked for the evidence. They acted very timely. So it's certainly promptly when you suspend somebody the same day and start your investigation. But then once they saw the evidence, they fired the guy. Um, the one thing that they could have done better is they didn't preserve those text messages in their own file. Because now, when I'm investigating it, once the claim has been made, I don't have a copy of it. Would you recommend, one of, one of the best practices that I came up with, so I don't know if it's the best practice, hoping it is, um, is during investigations, the stories can get muddled. So if I bring you in for an investigation on a Monday and I have follow-up questions on a Wednesday, your story from Monday to Wednesday has now changed. So I have always asked at the end of every investigation to have the person that I'm investigating sign their investigation notes. Is that helpful? Yeah, I mean, signing it, you mean the person that you're interviewing? Yes, the You say, I'm here's my notes, can you sign this and confirm that this accurately captures what Correct. we talked about today? That, that's certainly a good practice. Okay. Um, the one thing that can be risky is if you do it sitting there, I mean, I don't know about many of y'all, but nobody would be able to read my handwriting. And nobody would know what I documented, which, which leads to another important thing. A lot of people will jot down notes in what I call shorthand. And then they'll take it and type up those notes. What do you do with the handwritten copy? A lot of people take them and ball them up and throw them in the trash. Guess what? That can lead to a spoliation of evidence charge, which means the judge tells the jury that piece of evidence no longer exists and you can infer whatever you want about what's in there since they destroyed it. So what do you do? Save your chicken scratch notes. You're not changing your notes from the interview. You're just clarifying it. So you should be comfortable just stapling the two together and preserving both of them. If we get, I mean, in that scenario, I'd type them up and then I would get back with my interview subject and I'd say, hey, I've typed up a summary. Are you willing to sign this and confirm that this, confirm, that this validates what we talked about? I think that's a good approach. I mean, assuming you have a good investigator, would you recommend tape recording? Um, I never liked tape recording personally um, just because then you, you just never know what's going to be said. And people can say a lot of things that can get twisted the wrong way. But in that same context, approach every interview as if the person you're interviewing is recording you. I mean, and think about it that way. Because in South Carolina, it's a one-party consent state. They can turn on their recorder in their jacket pocket and record it away, and that is perfectly lawful doesn't matter what our policy says. That is lawful, and they have a right to do it. We can't stop them. We can encourage them not to do it through some creative policies, but legally we can't stop them. Yeah, on the uh, invest signing the investigator notes, is that better or having them write out their own statements and sign? 
I mean, I prefer documenting it because then it's, it's your interpretation and that shows this is my mindset of how I interpreted what this, what this witness has told me. If you then go, okay, now write your statement and they cherry pick the things that are important to them, chances are they're going to omit something. And then if you say, oh, but you forgot to mention this in your statement and it starts get, creating the appearance that we are fabricating a statement on their behalf. I've always, I've, I think the investigator personally should, should take the notes and record it. Um, okay, what, what are the biggest blunders you've seen people make in an investigation situation? Well, I was going to say one of the things that, that, that I, the biggest blunder in my mind is, one, first off, not doing the investigation when you should have. But we've covered that. Two, the second thing is not maintaining confidentiality. Um, I've seen situations where HR professionals will do an interview, write up the interview notes, leave the interview notes on their desk. Their desk isn't not in a locked drawer, not behind a locked door, but just on the desk where employees are coming in and out asking questions. You know, most HR people, their, their desk is like a train station. People are coming in and out all the time. And if you don't have a place to maintain the confidentiality of that information, you're going to have some problems. Yeah, I, I'll say the two biggest blunders I've seen are in interviews. Number one, open-ended questions are how you need to start every single interview. If you start an interview by saying, hey, we've received a report that this happened. Is this true? Well, you've now framed the entire situation for that person, and you have limited the world of what you're asking them, and they know, they feel like they are focused only on what you already know. Instead of saying, hey, we've received a report of some issues in your department. Have you observed anything? Tell me about what you've observed. And start with, I mean, I think about it like a funnel. We start very wide, open-ended, and then by the end, as they start giving us information, so let me confirm what you're telling me. And then you document it and you get them to sign it at the end. But the key is start very wide open. Um, the other thing is, as you ask those questions and get the responses and you document what you're hearing, document facts. Don't document your interpretation of those facts because those can get us into trouble. For example, when you're assessing credibility, which is critical in investigations, right? You're not writing, the witness seemed like they were lying. That's a conclusion that you have reached. What do you write? The witness had a hard time answering my questions, paused before answering my questions, seemed very uncomfortable with the answers, had inconsistent responses. Those typical body language type things that are facts, that are observations instead of conclusions you're reaching from the observations. The last thing I would say, I think hopefully you all have figured out that HR is not always for the faint of heart. <laughs> and if you're investigating a race case or a sex case, there will come a time when you need to ask questions that will probably embarrass you and embarrass the person you're asking the question of, but you're gonna have to plow through and ask that question. Because a lot of times those are the questions that are most important and those are the questions that lead to the other important stuff. So steal yourself when you're asking the questions, always ask that extra question. Yeah, I've taken many depositions once it becomes litigation where I've had to use words and phrases that make me feel extremely uncomfortable. Things I would never say when I'm talking to anybody. 
But the key is, I want to see how that witness responds when I ask that question using the exact phrase that was supposedly used in the workplace. When I say, you sent a text message that said this, why did you send it? I'm not going to say, you sent a text message that some people might feel is inappropriate. Well, what does that mean? I want to see how that person responds when I confront them with it because, again, the purpose of the investigation is for you to ultimately make a recommendation. That's what you're doing. And in HR, that's a credibility call. And the reason, again, the Me Too movement, what sparked it was an unwillingness to make credibility calls. And we had so many investigations where the conclusion was we were unable to substantiate the report. And that's it. And we take no action. We have to, it doesn't mean we substantiate everything, but we got to make tough credibility calls where we say, you know what, I can't prove that this happened, but I believe that it's more likely that it did than it didn't, and I'm going to recommend that the company take corrective action to address this. All right, well, this was fascinating. I, I think we could talk forever. We might have to talk again, but I really appreciate you guys being here today. I hope the audience got to uh, got to hear some good information, and the listeners out there got to uh, got to hear some great information. I appreciate all of your time, and uh, I, I appreciate them sp sponsoring again the conference again. Um, I'm uh, pressuring you now to sponsor it again next year, <laughs> um, and also through our podcast or our podcast series sponsors Hainsworth Sinclair Boyd. So thank thank them as well. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Thank you.